นะโอทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะภะคะวะโตอะระหะโตสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะปุถังธรรมังสังขังนมัสสามิอันนี้สวัสดีสำหรับโอกาสนี้ของอาณาจักรของเอลิกซ์ที่ร่วมในชาติของ8ประคัมภีร์ฉันคิดว่าจะคิดถึงเรื่องเกี่ยวกับ8ประคัมภีร์ฉันคิดว่าจะคิดถึงเรื่องเกี่ยวกับ8ประคัมภีร์ฉันคิดว่าจะคิดถึงเรื่องเกี่ยวกับ8ประคัมภีร์ฉันคิดว่าจะคิดถึงเรื่อThe uh, the aspect of the sikapada, the spelling out of the uh, of the the rules, sort of what uh, uh, there's uh, it's cast in the form of I undertake the precept to refrain from taking the life of any living creature, take, not taking uh, uh, what is not given, uh, refraining from intentional sex, uh, sexual activity, refraining from lying, all that, refraining, going without. Uh, That, uh, that this is the sikapada, or the the spelling out the 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 uh, the, say, the form of the 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 rule or the behavior, but it's important to consider where that behavior comes from, what what's that uh, inspired by, or what's that derived from, and so that uh, the, the the eight precepts is not just controlling our behavior, but rather it's. A way of encouraging us to draw upon our own most uh, noble and, I uh, say, skillful, um, our most, uh, uh, say, uh, respectful and um, uh, and wholesome qualities. What is called the guna dhamma, or those spiritual qualities of, of the heart. And so that uh, uh, if the precepts were just about controlling behavior, <laughs> then they'll be very, very limited. It's not just a matter of of uh, defining how we we act, but the purpose of them is to support that training of the heart and the the active development of those wholesome qualities. So, in this respect, I like to to refer to a particular a couple of suttas um, in the. The Book of the Eights in the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, suttas 41 and 42. If you're interested, to look them up. The Upasita suttas, and uh, in this, uh, the Buddha spells out his, uh, say, his understanding or his methodology, what his his reasoning is behind the establishment of the eight precepts, particularly as a form of training for the lay community on, on the moon days. But uh, I think it translates. Uh, more uh, uh, as fully and as accurately for the Anagarika life uh, as well. And what he points out is that the eight precepts is the natural behavior of the arahant, uh, the enlightened mind, and so that uh, once a, a, a being has realized full and complete enlightenment, then they have no inclination towards violence. They can't deliberately take life. And so that by adopting the behavior of the eight precepts of, and taking that that first precept, Parnati Pata, then as the Buddha puts it, yeah, and that in this way one will be living as the arahants do, and that will be for one's long-lasting welfare and happiness. And then so too with the with the rest of the uh, of the eight precepts, with not taking life and with not engaging in sexual activity, not lying, not using intoxicants. Only eating in the one a part of the day, not using uh, uh, entertainment and uh, adornment, and having a simple sleeping place. Each one of them is based around. This is the natural inclination of of the uh, of an enlightened being, and so when you adopt the behavior, uh, taking on those those standards of conduct and action and speech, 
then as he as he puts it, you're, you're, we're living as the arahants do, and that's for our, our long-lasting welfare and happiness. Because having that that standard to uh, be there as a guide, like having a map, so to say, <laughs> the map is not the territory, but the map tells you you know, uh, how to get to where where you need to go with, with respect to the territory, and so that. Uh, when we are, I'd say, adopting those behaviors, refraining from sexual activity, refraining from stealing and lying and, uh, and intoxication and so forth, then what we're doing is we're drawing upon those aspects of our heart, that in us which is completely incapable of violence, that in us which is completely honest, that delights in honesty and delights in in harmlessness, that aspect of us which is completely uninterested in sexual activity, that just doesn't wish to, or is not interested in relating to other human beings in, in sexual ways. It's not seeking entertainment. We don't need to be entertained or, or to be sensually stimulated in order to feel happy or, or complete, to feel satisfied. Um, don't, uh, or we don't, uh, with the eighth precept, not taking refuge in sleep. <laughs> Just to, to, to switch off and to not feel, to, to go numb, to be unconscious is not taken as a refuge. That the peace and happiness doesn't uh, come from just switching off or being insensitive or, or disconnected to, to sleep through life. So I feel this is a, it's very uh, important taking on the the eight precepts uh, as an anagarika, also uh, lay people living here in the monastery and taking this as a standard of conduct, even though there is that form of don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that. The, the purpose of it is to help, uh, encourage us, to help us to live from that place of uh, of clarity and simplicity, uh, to, to draw upon our, our own, uh, say, uh, to, uh, to really listen to our, our heart of hearts, to draw upon that in, uh, uh, with us, which is our most, um, say, true and the spiritual qualities of our nature and then to see the results of that because as the Buddha puts it in that, that teaching, living as the Arahants do then that's for our long lasting welfare and happiness. By adopting that mode of behavior, by choosing not to lie, not to, not to steal, not to, you know, to be living very simply and very harmlessly and to not be seeking distraction, then we can witness the results of that. What, what's the effects of of uh, not lying, what's the effects of not engaging in, in sexual activity with each other, what are the effects of just eating in one part of the day or not seeking entertainment and distraction. And then by seeing the, the results of that, then uh, that encourages us. It's like following the map and seeing that we're heading in a in a good direction. So I feel this is it's, uh, extremely important to, uh, to hold uh, the precepts in this way and in this in this manner, rather than a set of restrictions <laughs> and things that that are, are fencing us in or limiting our freedoms, is rather like uh, getting into a vehicle. Again, using the example of, of traveling, getting into a vehicle in order to travel a long distance. Uh, yes, you are you are confined within the space of the vehicle. You're getting into the van or the car, um, but because you you're undertaking this particular mode of, of being, then you can really get places, you, you can get where you want to go. So that uh, uh, the uh, if we understand the, um, the the precepts in this way, we take on the, the Anagarika life, take on the eight precepts, then rather than a set of limitations uh, uh, being its whole characteristics, rather like a vehicle, yes, there are limiting aspects to it, but... <laughs> The purpose of the whole thing is to help us to travel, to help us to, to get to, to where we want to go and to, to enable us to fulfill the, the potential that we have as human beings. And so uh, I, I feel that if one clearly establishes this uh, in one's mind, then it, it helps to cultivate a very skillful and, and uh, supportive attitude and can use the, the format of monastery life living in the, in the community, living in the, the monastery according to the disciplines that we have in a, a very effective and, and liberating way. That's, that's how it, it works. Uh, 
another of the aspects, uh, you know, say the, the, the rituals that we have of, of taking, uh, taking re- the three refuges and determining the eight precepts, just the simple act of, of bowing. Um, we do a lot of bowing in this community. <laughs> we, uh, not just in the, the ceremonies, uh, here in the, the pujas in the temple, but also, uh, our, our training, uh, particularly as monastics is whenever you come into a room where there's a shrine, then you should, uh, you should bow three times. So whenever I go to my kuti, when I go to my, into my kuti, I bow three times. Before I leave, you bow three times before you leave. You know, every time I come and go, I, I, just, I do my best to sustain that as, as a discipline. Uh, again, that can seem like a, uh, a, um, uh, just a, a set of behaviors, or, you know, you do it because you should do it or because it's expected. But the simple act of bowing, putting the head on the, the floor, you know, directing your attention towards the, the shrine and bowing three times, you're bowing to Buddha, to the Dhamma, to the Sangha. And the very act of putting your head on the floor is a, a, a physical gesture of letting go of self-centered thinking. So again, one of the aspects of, of Anagarika life going forth from the, the household life into homelessness is uh, it's a way, it's a symbolic gesture of letting go of self-centered thinking and uh, they relinquishing that or setting the intention to relinquish that. And bowing has the same purpose that often we, we live with a very head-centered world <laughs> And, and the feeling of I and me and my me, sort of me, the the director, up in the the, the cockpit, <laughs> uh, looking out through these eyes and hearing through these ears, that the 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 head can seem to be the the center of the self, uh, you know, the uh, the self station, and that uh, so that the feelings of I and me and mine can easily center around the 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 head and the the, the uh, Seeing and hearing, smelling, tasting—it's uh, all happening around the head, so that the, the the sense of I and me and mine can be very uh, much focused uh, around the head. So that placing of the head on the ground <laughs> in front of, of the the shrine, putting the head on the floor in a in a physically lower position than uh, than the the Buddha is a, a, a physical gesture. This is how uh, I would interpret it or how I would use it, understand it. It's a physical gesture uh, setting that intention to let go of self-centered attitudes, to let go of self-view, to let go of ego-centered habits, and to put <laughs> put the, uh, the, the, the I so in a physically lower position than the Buddha, which represents the awake, aware quality of the heart. So it's a gesture of humility, it's a gesture of respect, it's a gesture of, of uh, reverence and gratitude. So uh, uh, going forth from the, the household life into homelessness, it's uh, and putting on the white robes, shaving the head, putting on the, the uniform of the Anagarika, it's, uh, again, these are gestures of letting go of self-centeredness of being uh, focused upon you know our own uh, our own name our own story our own uh, personal uh, identity and and being part of a sangha being part of a group uh, and to reconfigure the 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 way that we see this life and who and what we are to to change the the views somewhat you know when we go into into brown uh, in the monastic life in this particular tradition then get a new name which is another way of reconfiguring our identity Lumpur, i was very impressed by lumpur Sumedha this afternoon reciting his whole paragraph long <laughs> name i thought that i i haven't memorized the one that i got with my uh, uh chalkun raja name but uh, I remembered it for a few days, but <laughs> it eroded very rapidly. So I'm extremely impressed that Lumpur, his and his is two or three times longer than mine. So I'm very impressed that he could remember the whole thing. Uh, so having a new name is, a, again, a way of letting go of the self-centered habits and the, the conditioning that the mind has about who and what we are as if you know i am a man or i am a theravadan monk or i am british or i'm american i'm a woman i'm i'm french i'm, I'm uh, greek or 
I'm Thai or, or Sri Lankan. I am old, I am young, I'm tall, I'm short, I'm healthy, I'm unhealthy. All these I am's that uh, we so easily uh, create and take to be uh, absolute, then this, uh, the, the gesture of letting go of our regular colorful clothing and <laughs> going into, into white in the Anagarika training, shaving one's head, uh, it's a, these are, uh, again, these are physical gestures to help bring about a, a transformation of attitude and, uh, that uh, you know, when you look in the mirror and, uh, and you uh, uh, you are seeing you know, yourself without hair. I remember when, uh, going back to when I was in Thailand. Uh, there were almost no mirrors in the, in Wat Pananachad in those days. So I, when I became an Anagarika, I'd never actually seen myself as an Anagarika. And then I was um, I had to go into the local town of Warin one day and. Um, uh, I was walking along the, the pavement, and I saw this, this this strange character behind the window of a shop, and I realized, oh, that weird thing, <laughs> that weird bloke with no hair—that's me, in the in the, the white in the white robes. That, uh, I really didn't see it was that that, that was me. I was sort of, oh, who's that bloke? He's you know, all dressed up in white like I am. And oh, it's my reflection in the window. <laughs> I hadn't seen myself in a, in a mirror up to that point. So uh, that uh, change of appearance, uh, change of form, what we wear and how we... These are skillful ways of getting a perspective on those, those uh, habits. But we're not trying to annihilate uh, our kind of quote-unquote old self or, or hate that or have aversion to it, but it's uh, these are skillful means to get a perspective on that, to see that a name is just a collection of sounds, you know, Amaro, or Raja Varaguna or Lumpur Sumato's Prom Vajiranyana. And when we when we see him, we don't think, uh, oh, it's pra, Prom Vajiranyana, I think, oh, it's Lumpur Sumato. <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, that's the name that, that we use to refer to him, but... Um, uh, you know, that uh, when he was born, he was given a different name, uh, Robert Jackman. Uh, we, uh, <clears throat> and so we can so easily, uh, say, take our names or our, our nationality, our education, our professional qualifications, the ups and downs of our life are so solid and so significant, so real. But uh, they, they have no substance. They have a form, but no substance. Uh, so there's a, a name like Amaro. It's, there's a form there, Amaro, uh, Amaravati. Uh, there's a form there, but in and of itself, there's there's nothing. Uh, there's no thing really there. There's no essence. It's an agreement. We agree to call this place Amaravati. Uh, Forty years ago, this wasn't Amaravati. <laughs> this was St. Margaret's School uh, before the nuns came in the 11th century to settle. Just down the road, this wasn't St. Margaret's Lane. <laughs> it wasn't St. Margaret's Convent. It was probably called something else altogether. Uh, so it's uh, important to, to cultivate that pers- uh, change of perspective. And so much of the, the, the forms that we use, the, the teachings that we use, it's to help the mind to recognize the habits of view, the habits of perception that are deeply embedded, and to challenge them. Uh, yesterday I was invited to give a Dhamma talk to a group based in, in Thailand, uh, and the, the, the title of the talk was uh, everything, uh, everything Has Emptiness as Its Own Nature, which is an interesting title. <laughs> everything Has Emptiness as Its Own Nature. And uh, I felt it was a very a useful area to explore, but and it's exactly around this that uh, yes, we have these bodies. We can say, yeah, I am Ajahn Amaro, or this is a temple. This is the temple. That's what this building is called, and it has a form, has a structure. But there isn't essentially anything here. Or right now, we've got the the plans to to build the new sala. It's like they, it doesn't exist yet. The old sala is still there, but when we take down the old sala, then the, the plans that we have in the drawings will hopefully take shape as a new sala. It's an idea, and we call it you know, sala. But there isn't anything essentially there that we 
take the pieces apart and then we give it a different name. Uh, it has a form, but the uh, uh, but that form has no absolute essence. It serves a purpose, like this temple is a great shelter, it's a great space to gather, it's, it's, it's warm, it's dry, it's uh, accommodating, it's got a, a, a serene and inspiring uh, ambience to it. It's very peaceful, very quiet. Uh, but there isn't anything absolutely essentially here. <laughs> Uh, this was built in the late 90s, so there was the old school gymnasium was here on this spot, and then it went out into the into the uh, the courtyard, the old school playground and car park, and so that was all taken down, and then woof, you know, the the temple was put in this spot. But one day, in a, a hundred years, five hundred years time, a thousand years time, you know, this building won't be here anymore. Something else will be here, or nothing will be here. <laughs> so. That quality of uh, of emptiness, the empty nature of all things, is essential to understand, to to reflect upon that. It doesn't mean that things are not useful. They are, they have uh, like this building. It has a form, has a structure. It's very useful, very beneficial. It makes a huge difference to our lives at Amravati. But if we think that the temple is absolutely here and it's absolutely real and permanent. Then we suffer. If we think that our, our body is absolutely real and permanent, we suffer. If we think our mental faculties or our health is something real and permanent, we suffer. We think our name or our story has a particular value or meaning and it's, and that has a, an absolute quality to it, then we create suffering right there. Oh, when the Buddha was, was talking about this, one of the most helpful teachings he gave was, uh, Called the uh, the lump of foam, and he was uh, I think by the the river Ganges at um, Ayodhya, uh, Ayutthaya, uh, in uh, uh, in uh, in India. Well, no, Ayutthaya is in Thailand, but <laughs> Ayodhya in, in was the name of the place on the bank of the river. And there was a lump of foam floating along on the water. And the Buddha said, "You see that that lump of foam uh, floating along on the surface of of the river." Said the body rupa is like a lump of foam. Uh, that uh, it seems like there's something there, there's something you know, solid and substantial. But when you when you touch it, when you reach it, the, the, there's there's nothing s- solid. There's no substantiality there. There's no permanent thing there. Then he went on to explain about the uh, and to describe the other five khandas. So he said, uh, feeling feeling vedana is like a water bubble. He said when the in the the heavy rains, when rain falls down onto a puddle uh, or onto a pond, then the, uh, the water forms into a bubble momentarily, but then the, the bubble bursts. It it's, has a form, has a shape, it's there for a moment, but then it's gone. So the Vedana is like a, a water bubble. Um, then uh, he said that uh, Sanya, perception, it's like a mirage, like if you're out in the desert in the, in the, in the heat and you can see a, an image of, a, of, of trees or buildings in the air. But when you get there, you realize, oh, there aren't any trees here. There's no buildings here. It was, it was just a mirage. It was just a, a pattern of light in the air. There was nothing substantial. There was no thing absolutely there. It was just a, an appearance of form, but with no substance. Then Sankara, uh, Mental formations, ideas, emotions, memories, imagination, uh, intentions, or a whole array of mental activity. Uh, all of that, he said, it's like a, the, the, uh, the trunk of a, of a, a banana tree. Um, they don't grow in this country, <laughs> but uh, the, it's rather like a, a leek or an onion. He said, if you peel away the, the layers of leaves, there's no, there's no heartwood, there's no core, there's nothing essentially there. Um, at the at the very center, and so he said, uh, sankaras are like a, a banana plant, like a plantain that you just peel away the leaves. There's no heartwood. There's no there's no trunk. It's just a, a collection of leaves. It seems to be solid, but when you take away the the uh, the, the leaves, there's no thing there. 
And then the last one, uh, that of vinyana, sense consciousness, discriminative consciousness, said it's like a, like a conjuring trick, like a magician performing a conjuring trick, uh, that uh, they seem to be doing something magical, you know, pulling a rabbit out of a hat or you know, making somebody appear or disappear. And it, it looks like a, it's a real magic, but it's just a sleight of hand. It's just pretend. There's no, there's no real magic happening. The, the rabbit didn't really disappear or didn't really appear. It was just a, it was just a, a seeming, just something that was apparently occurring, but there was no thing there. So that when we look at, and when we hear those examples, we can say, "Oh, yeah." So the uh, so the, the body is like a lump of foam, or, or vedana sensations are like a water bubble, perceptions are like a, a mirage, uh, uh, thoughts and feelings, emotions, uh, ideas, memories are are like a, a, a banana tree, a banana plant, or the consciousness is like a conjuring trick. Those can be uh, meaningful and compelling uh, images. And say, oh yeah, that, that's good. I'll remember that. But then, <laughs> but then we have a pain in our body, and it seems like, ow, that really hurts. That that pain is real. Or that this is my body, and I'm ill. I've got this ill. I've got this disease, and I, you know, I've got. I should worry about this illness that I've got. Or uh, these, these uh, uh, the sense of of owning things or being somebody or our, our identity, our character is you know, real and solid and permanent. How quickly and how fully those habits of attachment and identification <laughs> get uh, get revived. They, they they come into being. They have such incredible strength. So uh, when uh, um, Alex was changing into his his whites, I was describing the quality of mindfulness. And that's, uh, that is so essential. It really takes a, like a, a constant, a steady mindfulness to be examining how solid we make feelings, feelings of comfort, discomfort, how, the, 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 how solid we make perceptions, like uh, that things have a form. We say that's attractive, that's unattractive, that's beautiful, that's not beautiful. Uh, this is good, that's bad. How we give value to what we see, hear, smell, taste, and touch all the time. How we believe in our thoughts and our opinions. So if we, we say that's good, we take that to be an absolute truth or that's bad. We take it as an absolute truth rather than, oh, here is the mind liking something. Here is a thought. Here is an opinion. It, uh, it has this, uh, this shape, this form. It can't be uh, absolutely true. It can only be a convenient fiction. It's an approximation. Every word, every thought, every sensation, there, there's no thing absolutely there. So there's contemplation of emptiness and, and, and actively, say, taking, receiving the experience of the five khandhas, material form, you know, the body or form inside or form outside our own body or the, the, the material world around us, the universe, to constantly, steadily bringing that reflective, questioning attitude, challenging uh, the habits of this is solid, or this is real, this is permanent, this is true, <laughs> this is beautiful, this is not beautiful, yeah, this is mine, this is yours, and mindfully, steadily, over and over again, moment by moment, day by day, hour by hour, to keep bringing that uh, to the way that the the world is experienced, the inner world of our thoughts and feelings, our memories, our ideas, our opinions, our judgments of of happiness and unhappiness, uh, our the way that we judge ourselves, the way we judge other people. I like this person. I don't like that person. I like myself. I don't like myself. <laughs> the, yeah, uh, I'm I'm doing well. I'm doing badly. Uh, just every single judgment that the mind makes, every way that we hold the, the, the perception, to challenge that, to meet that, and it, it's this is uh, it takes a lot of work. <laughs> when we talk about you know working at Amravati, we can think of pushing uh, wheelbarrows full of gravel around, or, or digging in, in the garden, or, or cooking in the in the kitchen, or organizing errands into into town or you know, putting out buildings and uh, uh, painting uh, re you know, rearranging the library and but uh, i would say that yes that's one kind of work but the uh, the main kind of work that we're really here to do why 
why we have these buildings and why we gather together and why we live here and have the, the structures and routines that we do. The essential work is this work of mindfully receiving the experience of the five khandhas and challenging them over and over. <laughs> these are these five groups of experience, these five areas of experience and moment by moment uh, questioning the, uh, the, the like say the quality of of those experiences when things seem solid and real and permanent is that so <laughs> is that so is this really what makes this mine what makes this you what makes this good or bad what makes this some something that is is uh, a right or wrong uh, what uh, <coughs> what is the uh, essential substance here so that uh, that kind uh, of of challenging and that that work of mindfully examining our experience, I, I feel that's that's really what we're here to do. What I feel I'm here to do, <laughs> I'm doing uh, mostly. I mean, I have the role of being the abbot of Amravati and, and sitting here in the in the seat giving a dhamma talk and and so on. But really, I say the main the main job that I have is <laughs> moment by moment paying attention to seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, remembering, imagining. You know, watching emotions uh, arise and pass away, and to to meet those with that questioning, exploratory attitude, that challenging attitude of uh, so, or well, this is uncomfortable, so, or this you know, I'm excited about that, or that's interesting, so, <laughs> I'm, uh, this is this is worrying. What are we going to do about that? Yeah, oh, good question, <laughs> uh, and that that uh, the effect of that. That establishment of mindfulness and questioning the solidity of form, feeling, perceptions, mental formations, consciousness, the, the result of that is profoundly liberating. The, 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 that quality of, uh, of examination, the, the, the effect of that brings about the change of attitude. We, the, the mind then is enabled to let go of the self-centered habits the conditioned you know, judgments and perceptions that are deeply rooted in our conditioning, and that the mind goes from that self-centered perspective to a dhamma-centered perspective. This is why these the, the customs that we have of shaving the head, putting on robes, you know, and then keeping the living by the precepts, bowing, chanting, recollecting, you know, taking refuge in Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha over and over again. All of these structures are there to help. Drop, help us to drop that self-centered habits of thinking, uh, and to see uh, and to know the world from a dhamma-centered perspective, a nature-centered perspective. Instead, that, that's the, the I would say the purpose of so many of these of these structures. And then, when that empty quality of the body and the material world. Uh, uh, the uh, the realm of feeling sensation uh, the realm of perception sight sound smell taste touch emotions uh, feeling grumpy feeling excited feeling inspired feeling sleepy feeling depressed you know, feeling uh, joyful uh, feeling completely neutral <laughs> yeah the whole array of the the uh, the experiential field from you know, Rupa Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, the more that uh, really is seen and known uh, as empty, then the the heart is, I would say, is really seeing with the the eye of of Dhamma, the 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 eye of wisdom, the Dhamma Chaku or Panya Chaku, the the eye of Dhamma. But uh, it's uh, establishing a Dhamma-centered perspective. Uh, so that the mind is not receiving, receiving or, or, or say framing things in a personal way, but it is seeing in in terms of of reality of Dhamma itself. Uh, and of the of the teachings that the Buddha gave about emptiness, uh, I was mentioning yesterday is in the dialogue um, in the the last chapter of the Sutta Nipata, the Parayana. The way to the beyond. There's a, a series of uh, dialogues. As a number of young Brahmin students came to to see the Buddha, and had various questions, and one of them was called Mogaraja, 
uh, and uh, Mogaraja asked the Buddha, uh, what is the way that we should see the world uh, in order to evade the king of death? How can we, what's, what's the way that we should look at the world in order uh, to, uh, to avoid or to not be seen on, uh, by the king of death, to escape death effectively? And then the Buddha res- responded, uh, if you see the world as empty, Mogaraja, then the king of death will not find you. The king of death will not be able to see you. If you establish uh, the, uh, the quality of mindfulness, if you let go of the feelings of, of self-view, if you let go of self, uh, then the king of death, uh, and you see the world as empty, then the king of death will not find you. So that's a kind of dramatic way of speaking. <laughs> but what it, it means is... Uh, even though most of us probably don't go around uh, with the idea of, of the Pratmachurat, the, the, the king of death, looming in our lives as a, a sort of metaphysical, sort of a spiritual entity. Uh, what that means is that when the, the, the world is, is seen as empty, and particularly when the Buddha defines what, what he means by the world, what is the world? The, the eye, the ear, the nose, the tongue, the body, the mind. What is the world? The, the eye, visual forms, eye consciousness, the feeling that arises based on eye consciousness. Uh, this is what is called the world in, in this Dhamma and discipline. So when the world is seen as empty, then the king of death will not find us. So what that means, I would say, is that the heart is seeing and knowing the, the world, the field of experience, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, emotion, memory, imagination intention if that's seen as empty as not having any intrinsic absolute substance then the heart is not tying itself to all that begins and ends you know the things that arise and pass away sight sound smell taste touch thought feeling the material uh, material forms if the heart doesn't tie itself to things that begin and end if uh, it if it uh, uh, if it doesn't create that attachment to what it's not, then it, it rests uh, in, body, in the embodiment of what it is. The, the heart embodies the Dhamma that it already is. That, uh, so that the, the, the Dhamma is, is timeless, is unborn, undying. It's uh, ajati, unborn. Uh, abhuta, uh, is un, uh, unborn, unformed, unoriginated, uncreated. That's the uh, is deathless, amara, amata, and so that that when the, the heart doesn't tie itself to the born and the dying, then its its intrinsic nature as unborn, undying, as deathless, uh, then that is what is manifest. That, that is what is realized. That. Uh, when you the, the heart ties itself to beginnings and endings, succeeding, failing, gaining, losing, comfortable, uncomfortable, happy, unhappy, uh, then when it makes those false attachments, then it, it when we feel like we're being, we're, you know, I'm succeeding, I'm failing, I'm gaining, I'm losing, I'm happy, I'm unhappy. But when the, the, those qualities uh, of the experiential field are recognized as being intrinsically empty, substanceless, uh, then they, they, the heart is not tying itself to what it is not. <laughs> it awakens to what it is, which is unborn, undying, boundless, uh, uh, unfathomable, and uh, yeah, limitless, perfectly peaceful, uh, awake, and uh, liberated. So even though we might not go uh, through our lives with using that kind of terminology of the king of death, how can I, you know, waking up at Amaravati in the morning, how can I avoid the king of death today? You know, <laughs> most of us don't think in that kind of language. I would imagine, maybe some of us do, but uh, uh, it's not what crosses my mind first thing in the morning each day. But uh, I, I feel that that um, we can translate it in, into our own languaging uh, of things that, to make it uh, more meaningful and realistic. That how can the heart be truly free, uh, uh, boundless, uh, and 
fully at ease, fully at peace, uh, limitless uh, in a world of, of form and in a world of beginnings and endings and the endlessly fluid changing uh, aspect of the material world and the, the mental world or you know, the aspects of perception constantly coming and going and changing uh, the the process of the experiential field that even though that can seem to be really limiting it's only limiting if the heart ties itself to that which is limited <laughs> if it doesn't identify or attach to what's limited it's not limited <laughs> that, uh, that's the ironic and strange chemistry of these lives that uh, uh, that uh, as it says in that, that teaching that we recite quite often, there is the unborn, unoriginated, uncreated, unformed. Uh, if there was not the unborn, the unoriginated, the uncreated, the unformed, then liberation from the born, the originated, the created, the formed would not be possible. But because there is the unoriginated, the uncreated, uh, the uh, unformed, therefore the liberation from the, the born, the originated, the created, the formed is possible. And that's not somewhere else. It's not some other kind of uh, dimension on the the, the uh, other side of the universe. This is the very fabric of your own heart, your own mind. Yeah. This is, uh, as Lumpur Sumato um, uh, say, stresses and emphasizes over and over again in his teachings, that, that quality of awakened awareness, that that awakened consciousness it's the, it's the very fabric of our life it's the only real <laughs> it's the only real thing that which exists means that that which stands out the five khandas are not real they exist they to, to exist the the etymology of the word exist means to uh, to stand out uh, to to uh, and so that things the five khandas exist they stand out they they're apparent Form, feeling, perception, mental formations, consciousness, but they're not real. They're not. There's nothing absolute. There's nothing fundamental. Nothing uh, essential there. But uh, as uh, Venerable Paniwado pointed out, you know, the five khandas exist, but they're not real. The Dhamma is real, but it doesn't exist. It doesn't stand out. <laughs> it does. Uh, it's not. It's not tangible. And again, as Lumpur Sumedho emphasizes over and over again in his teachings, the Dhamma is unimaginable. You can't create an image. <laughs> it's indescribable. Yeah, because how can you imagine what is timeless, formless, uh, yeah, unborn, undying? You know, the, the powers of imagination collapse because our imagination depends on memory and sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. It, uh, and that's where our imagination and our language uh, it depends on the on, it, it borrows its reality from the the sense world but that which is timeless unborn undying formless unlocated non-personal <laughs> free of time free of self free of location the 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 imagination has got nothing to work with this there's, there's no there's no material there to to create an image, but uh, that the, the Dhamma is the the fundamental refuge is the that which is fundamentally real that the integrative principle of of all things, but the mind can't create an image of it. So and so I feel that's a very skillful expression of uh, of Venerable Panyuados that uh, the Dhamma doesn't exist, but it's real. <laughs> The five khandas exist, but they're not real. And uh, that's a helpful little nugget to to reflect upon and to to explore. When the uh, the we take a, a principle like the um, if we, if we see the emptiness of the world, the emptiness of of the experiential field, then the king of death will not find us in that. Again, even though it's using sort of dramatic or mythological language, what's that experience of of being free from from death, free from birth and death? In that moment of seeing the empty nature of sound, of sight, smell, taste, touch, the empty nature of a thought, the empty nature of physical sensation, of a material form, then that quality of simplicity, 
naturalness and security that uh, the, the heart that knows the, the world, that which knows the world, is not limited by the world. So whatever happens in the experiential field, whether it's comfortable or uncomfortable, expected or unexpected, coming from inside or coming from outside, so <laughs> it's just this, that that which knows the world isn't limited by the world. It's not, it's not bound by the world. That which knows the person isn't a person. It's not born and dying. It, it knows birth and death. It knows the world beginning and ending. It knows sounds beginning and ending, feelings beginning and ending. It knows the world, but it's not limited by the world. It's not defined by the world. So that the, when, uh, when that is, uh, realized, embodied, then there's a great ease, there's a great peacefulness, there's a, a sense of security and vulnerability that, that nothing can, no thing can touch that because <laughs> it's not a thing. <laughs> that, that which knows the world is not limited by the world, it's lokutara, it transcends the world. So why we use this, uh, the, the epithet for the Buddha, lokavidu, the knower of the world, that's the quality of your own heart, this, this very heart, this very mind, that's uh, the lokavidu. That's why the Buddha is a refuge, that awake, aware quality is a refuge, and so we can know the changes of comfort and discomfort that go on in this body, or the, uh, the, the changes of the weather or the season. Uh, like right now, we, close to the winter solstice is the, the time of maximum darkness. It's, you know, dawn after seven o'clock in the morning here in southern England, dark by four in the afternoon. The days are very short, but it's the turning point. You know, it's the, the darkest time of the year after uh, the 21st and the days start to get longer again. But, uh, those, but that which knows the dark, the dark time of the year is not dark. <laughs> That which knows the, the bright time of the year or the light time, of the year, it's, it's not light. Darkness and, and light don't really apply. Pleasant and unpleasant don't really apply. Gain and loss don't really apply. Those are all attributes of the experiential world, the, the world of, of perception, of form. So when the, the heart awakens uh, to that empty quality of, of all things and recognizes that there is the, the, even the word thing, it's an approximation. It's just a way of describing a particular pattern of experience. We can say, this is a clock, or this is a dumber seat, or this is a microphone, or this is a human. But that's just, these are just convenient fictions. This isn't absolutely a dumber seat. It was a, an oak tree, or several oak trees at one point. Then the oak trees got sliced up and put together according to a a commission that was given 30 or so years ago, and boom, yeah, the oak tree became a dhamma seat. And it'll be a dhamma seat for a while, and then it'll stop being that. It's an event. So things are really a, a process or an event. Uh, they're not. There's nothing solid or permanent there. So even the word thing is important to understand as an approximation. It's a, a convenient fiction. When the heart recognizes there aren't really any things, there's just these processes that uh, that take shape in the natural world. They function according to the laws of cause and effect. You know that uh, you, you you click a switch and the light comes on. You click the switch, the switch off, and then the lights go off. You know, <laughs> the laws of cause and effect still work, but uh, the the uh, when we re we reflect that yes, cause and effect still functions. That's part of the the patterning of the natural order. But all of that, uh, uh, say the workings of cause and effect, uh, they function within a process that is essentially empty. There's no thing fundamentally there. And when the heart really awakens to that, in that very moment, there's freedom, there's ease, there's there's peacefulness. And then the, uh, the, when that is recognized as the, as the basis, as the, the fundamental reality, that, uh, and there's a sense of ease and safety, security, freedom there, then that helps the, the heart to make those choices to create causes for 
for happiness, for comfort, for ease. So we, we take the precepts, we live according to our routines, those are respecting the laws of cause and effect. If we take the precept to not kill things, then there's a, the, the effect of that is that we feel at ease, people around us feel at ease, or the living creatures nearby feel at ease. That's the effect. <laughs> if, we, if we take the precept of not stealing, then again we create harmony uh, and ease within ourselves and within the, the beings around us. So uh, we are respect. We uh, are then uh, able to use the, uh, the the way that nature operates, the laws of cause and effect, to make uh, life more more comfortable, more peaceful, more simple for ourselves and those who live around us, and we can avoid creating those causes that, that create more division, more conflict, more uh, stress and difficulty between us and the world. So we, so the, the precepts, the forms, the robes, you know, these are all empty. <laughs> Theravada Buddhism uh, is, is empty. There isn't really any such thing as Buddhism, really. It's a it's an agree it's a human agreement. It's a, a set of conventions that we use. There's no thing there. <laughs> it might sound a bit heretical, but I would say that's it's important. There isn't really anything there, but the laws of cause and effect operate, and so that uh, on that uh, the, the the forms that we use those shapes. Um, in terms of our words, our actions, our, the rituals we follow, the customs that we have, that each of them is empty, but they have, they do affect each other, and they, there's a way that those processes operate, and they can lead towards clarity and peacefulness, or they can lead towards confusion and conflict and, and harm. So we consciously establish the forms that, uh, and structures that lead towards peacefulness and harmony, and we incline away from those forms and actions, words that lead to conflict and difficulty. And uh, in this way, then we're, we're both respecting the, the Dhamma aspect of it, the, uh, you know, the empty, fundamentally empty nature of things, the, the, the Dhamma side of it. We're also respecting the, the Charana or conduct or the Vinaya side of it. It's the substance of this spiritual training is Dhamma Vinaya. Vija and Charana, that quality of awakened awareness that knows the empty nature of all things, but then there's also its partner is Charana or conduct, which recognizes the laws of cause and effect that, uh, that determine how the natural order functions in the, the material and sensory world. So I offer these thoughts for consideration on this uh, auspicious evening of Alex's going forth. And uh, whatever is useful, please take it and keep it. Whatever is not, then please leave it aside. Yeah,